nice one. Let's do this. All right, so we're hanging out in Ocean City. First week of August, it is White Marlin Open Week, and um, hanging out with a couple friends for the What's on the Line podcast. This is episode six. Just really talking about fishing, about what's going on off here, offshore right now, and hanging out with C.L. Marshall and Bill Hall. You guys have been best friends since when? Man, I think uh, I met Bill back when I was in seventh grade. I got most of my formal education riding to high school with Bill in the back of his red Camaro. Uh, we've been pretty successful since then as a team, I would say, Bill, huh? Yeah, a lot of stories we can't repeat, but uh, I think actually our relation started around duck hunting, and then it, it uh, expanded into fishing and college and women and stuff we really can't expand upon. Right, that's, that's, that's accurate. I'd agree with that. Well, I met CL online dating. <laughs> yeah, and it was a duck hunting experience as well. Fortunately, I swiped right on that. But <laughs> actually, Dave, actually, it was pretty interesting because uh, we met through a mutual friend, Anthony Thomas, who used to run the Skirt Chaser at Ocean City Fishing Center. And uh, he was a mutual friend, him and Dennis Lynch, I believe it was. Yep. And um, as a matter of fact, we met at uh, Cedar Hall Docking and Duck Hunting. It was uh, an interesting day, and as luck would have it, Dennis ended up going with... Um, with Anthony and Dave went with me, and uh, one of the stories about that that day made it in one of in one of my first books, Chesapeake Bay uh, Duck Hunting Tales. Uh, David, the, uh, the the avid outdoorsman, if you will, uh, had a great shot on some pintails. He had some these three pintails came in. Dave shot three times and killed two pintails, uh, and then uh, he shot two well three times, knocked two down, finished a cripple off with his third shot. I went out in the boat to retrieve him, and as I was doing that, we had 75 teal pitching the decoys. Well, I had his shell bag with him and all his shells. He had nothing in his pocket. All he could do was sit there and watch those teal swim around in the goose decoys. He had no chance. The day the ducks won. The day the ducks won. <laughs> that was one of them, that's for sure. Ducks won, Dave zero. Yeah. Yeah, so picture hopping into a, what, 16-foot John boat. Yes. Taking on water, running across the choppy Pocomoke Sound. Yeah, uh, so. we, we took on a little bit of water that day, but, you know, it was worth it. We had a great day. Had a great day. So let's talk fishing. Well, talk about, so you mentioned your book. So. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about the new book, Chesapeake Bay Eight Door Tales, uh, Life by the Tides. And in that book, there's a couple pictures from uh, Captain Billy Chapman that he took, uh, Captain aboard the Fishbone, that where we're sitting right now in uh, Fisherman's Marina in West Ocean City. Uh, great picture that Billy took from the tower of a, of a blue marlin getting ready to meet the business end of some steel and uh, some, some um, I believe it's some swordfish pictures that Billy took as well that are going to make that book. Uh, we look forward to that thing being released by uh, by uh, Arcadia Publishing in late September, early October, I believe. So you'll be able to find that on bookshelves and through Amazon and through my website, uh, clmarshallpublishing.com uh, at any of that uh, after that time. Bill, as a matter of fact, last time the three of us were together, it, we, it was cool because it was almost like a rerun of tonight. You know, we went to the Rice House for dinner. We hung out in West Ocean City for a little bit. And, uh, well, we went red drum fishing, wasn't it, Bill? I think we did, yes. So that, that made the book? That was the first book. Remember, that was the second book, uh, Chesapeake Bay, Hunting and Fishing in the Chesapeake. All right. I don't think I've read that one yet, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> we, caught a, we caught 100 redfish back in, uh, in three days. What, 50 degree water temps in the 50 surf? 50 degree days, the week of Christmas. Week of Christmas, that was what, 2013, I think? We were fishing in chest waders and t shirts and Santa Claus hats. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. 
Yeah, what do you look for, Dave, uh, in, the, in this red fishery coming up? I mean, the CCA has been instrumental in uh, the success down in the south. I mean, any translation of that up this way? I would think so. I mean, the, a lot of the stuff that's been done, the work that's been done since late 70s in the Gulf was important to protect red, redfish and speckled trouts for recreational anglers. Right. So we have access to them. And, you know, the redfish are a long-lived species, and it takes them a long time to have successful year classes. So that's What's why... What's the growth rate on those, Dave? It's, you know? It's very fast in the early years. It's not nearly as fast once they reach spawning age. And it all depends on where they are and genetics and a lot of other factors I'm sure we don't understand. But our big fish here in the Mid-Atlantic, from what I understand, and Bill, you know a lot about them too, so cut me off at any point. They spend the winter time kind of off on the shelf, and there's some long line surveys that are done. I think North Carolina Game and Fish does that survey. It's That's about right. the only adult kind of survey we have for the at least the mid-Atlantic body of fish. But they grow quick, so when you get the puppy drum, it's, what, two or three years. They'll still be sublegal, right about legal, and then probably grow out of that slot and disappear for a bit and then come back as the, the big ones. Right, we have a tremendous adult population right now in Virginia. I mean, they've been popping off down around the bridge tunnel schools of two, three, and four hundred fish, and people have been able to cast in the schools. And some boats have been catching in excess of twenty fish in a session, just as fast as you can cast. And they're starting to show up in the fall. Right now, right along the uh, the, the ledges of the Chesapeake Bay, from Cape Charles up and almost to a Nancock, and it's uh, usually a late afternoon fishery, and you can fish live baits, cut baits on the bottom, and expect to catch anywhere from 2 to 12 fish a night. So, in your experiences over the years, what's the fishery, what's going on with the fishery? Is it come back and then kind of petered out a little bit and come back again and the natural cycles there? The adult fish has really been on the rebound. I mean, when I was a kid, it was it was quite an event to catch an adult red drum, and now it's, it's pretty much a given. If you're going at red drum fishing, you're going to catch... On a given night, you know, anywhere from four to a dozen fish. Yeah, yeah, I guess you not, know, Dave, not killing them is a big part of that, especially uh, the old ones. Definitely. Well, <laughs> I, I think that I think that has something to do with it for sure. But I think the other thing that, that has probably more to do with it is the reemergence of sub, subaquatic vegetation. Mm -hmm. I know in the areas that we fished, that we grew up fishing back in the day. Now, granted, Bill and I have caught redfish in the same spot for the last 40 years. Yeah, for 40 years we've been fishing the same spot and catching these big bull reds, trophy reds. But, you know, when you look up in the, especially in the spring in the shallow water around the Accomack County and that area from uh, Punkatig all the way down through uh, Saxes in that area, I mean, that whole shoreline now is covered with subaquatic vegetation. And, yeah, there's a school of thought that's, you know, make, that say that makes it more difficult to fish, but... You know, all I can tell you is this spring was one of the best we've had, uh, and Bill went with me several times, uh, best we've had for catching these big bull reds, the big reds, and even speckled trout. Uh, we had a great day at Fishbone Island, didn't we, Bill? Right, and one thing, these fish seem to be showing up earlier year after year. This year, it was the weekend of Easter. Um, yes. Back when I was a kid, we would not see fish probably until the last week in April, first week in May off of Nancock, and this year they were almost a month earlier than that. So I blame it on global warming. I don't know what it is, but we're seeing more fish and we're seeing fish staying earlier or beginning earlier and staying later. Yeah, you can blame it on whatever you want. But all I know is on Easter Sunday, I was out there with my son Parker and uh, 
<laughs> there were so many redfish around us, it was absolutely scary. Uh, we caught them casting, we caught them on bait, we caught them on top water, we caught them in, I mean, it was it was truly a trip of a lifetime. Uh, and it was on an Easter Sunday afternoon in a place where, you know, in, in mid-June, there'll be 25 or 30 boats, and we had that whole bar to ourselves. It was absolutely beautiful. We're talking go. 30, 40, 50-pound redfish in three, four foot of water. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Whole, it's a whole different animal. Well, they're probably up in there because that water warms up quicker. Well, there's that, grasses, there's food. That's there's... part of it. And the other part of it is they're up there looking for the, the molting soft crabs. Mm -hmm. They're looking for something to eat. They're no different than you and I, uh, after this podcast is over, looking for Dairy Queen ice cream. Amen. Dumpsters here in Ocean City. That's right. Dumpsters in Ocean City. Or uh, you know, something like that. But yeah, it's no different than that. They're up there looking for something to eat. Make no mistake. That water's warm. There's a few crabs up there in the shallow water. And they're out there looking for that. They're 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 done chasing menhaden. You know they're looking for something that's a little bit easier to eat. Uh, you know, and, and quite frankly, menhaden were relatively scarce during that that time of the year in the bay this year. Hmm. So is that a normal occurrence? You think, or are they typically? I don't know if it was a normal occurrence. I would have thought, Dave, that with the uh, warmer water and the abundance of other fish that were right there, uh, you know, there might have been more menhaden in the bay. But I have I didn't see them this spring. Now. With that said, it's 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 a lot of them right under the beach right now, and there you know a lot of Spanish mackerel in there with them. Do you see any today, uh, Billy? Menhaden under the beach? No, he wasn't looking for them. He was looking for things with long bills. I didn't see them. We ran down the beach to spearfish this morning and was looking for them too. You didn't see them didn't there see either. Any. No. I tell you, we saw. I came across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel yesterday, and we saw a large school of menhaden right along the third and fourth island of the uh, the bridge tunnel and the Spanish were in there jumping and also there were a few false albacore mixed in there right behind the Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I heard the, uh, the some of the pound net guys up in Maryland were having a little trouble catching catching the Manhattan early on and then after that it seems to have picked up so maybe they're coming through, maybe not. What are you doing out there, CL? Huh? Are you making a drink? You want a water? I'll take it, whatever you got. There's a... Impromptu drink break in the middle of the podcast here. <laughs> We're taking a, a, a drink break for the podcast. There's no such thing as a pause button. This is this is live. We're playing it. So, Bill, you do. Uh, you're wearing a shirt with a pen out uh, logo on it. I know. I see you at different events throughout the area. Um, what's your connection into the fishing world? And what's your uh, he's got a hell of a what else do you do? He's got yeah, a hell of a background. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be sponsored by. Uh, Pure Fishing, which is one of the parent companies of Penn, and it's a number of, of different uh, fishing tackle um, dealerships. Don't leave me, Billy. CL's back with us. Yep. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to represent Penn for a number of years. Um, started out with a surf fishing gig, and then it moved into offshore, and now it pretty much covers the whole gamut. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be paid to do shows and represent um, pen at, at, at several several occurrences. I tell you, it's, it's about a pain fishing with him because all he wants to do is fish with gulp and this and that. So I, I, and I got to tell you, I, I, I'm lacking a few photo credits on some of those fish you've caught, Bill. That is true, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, Sam. But of course, I do get credits for my pictures that do appear in your books. So yes, you do. And I'll even tie <laughs> All right, so first book was Chesapeake Bay Waterfowling Tales? No, the first book we did was uh, actually a cookbook. It was um, Honey, uh, a, taste of dumb, a Taste of Eastern Shore Living was a cookbook we did. 
And that thing was, uh, it's done really well. It's been surprising, the support that's had uh, over the seven years that's been out. Uh, we did that, then I spun that off into us. Well, we were sitting right talking one night, and, and we had these stories of, you know, and we kept swapping hunting and fishing stories like most people do. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not abnormal, you know, and sometimes they grow a little larger as they go down the line. And, and I got thinking, I said, you know, I need to write these things down. It's important. Uh, and so I did. And my wife was there on her iPod, like most married couples are. She's thumbing through Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all that other stuff, you know. So she's thumbing through that. And at the end of the day, at the end of the month, I was, she was like, I was like, well, I finished. I wrote this book. And she looked at me like I was crazy. So uh, that was uh, Chesapeake Bay Duck Hunting Tales was the first one. And that did well uh, on the heels of that. I did hunting and fishing the Chesapeake. Um, and now I'm really excited about the new one, which will be out, like I said, in October. Um, it's called um, Chesapeake Outdoor Tales Hunt, uh, Life by the Tides. And I'm quite excited about that. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, you're in it, Dave. So, <laughs> which story? <laughs> uh, let's just let that be a surprise. There we the go. Line. There we go. Yeah, let's just say we were in a cornfield and it was hot. Oh, that was a good day. That was a good day. Yeah, it was a good day. Yeah. That's better to be lucky than good. Yeah, it was that. Uh, one of the stories in there, Bill's about our mutual friend, Kerry Roberts. Oh, my Lord. Remember Kerry? I do remember Kerry. He ran the white hot at a watch-up rig. Yep, we spent many a tournament day fishing with him. Yeah, we uh, we were right there, and it was in October, and we thought we saw all these uh, school of We just knew it was the biggest school of fish we'd ever seen. I mean, it, they, the fins were all over the top of the water. We got up to them. They were pineapples. They were dull pineapples, and they were just floating with their little, their little, um, uh, they're not roots, but their little, their fins out of the water, for lack of a better word. Well, the better, the better question is, did they have any rum? Uh, well, on, yeah, on uh, that's one of the best things that Kerry did uh, in fishing with him. Um, I, I, I successfully brought aboard, uh, via the gaff, 22 pineapples. He produced a bottle of Myers rum. And uh, the boat ride in was much more memorable than the fishing trip. When life gives you pineapples, make pineapple drinks. Uh, I cored that puppy right out. You'd have been proud. I like it. I like it. See, <laughs> yeah. that's the, see, that's a skill set I think the American sportsman has in many ways. Right. We're, 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 we're adapt. You know, we adapt, we're, right? We're, we're exactly. <coughs> we're resilient. Yeah. So um, you guys have known each other since, what would you say, fourth grade? Seventh grade? Yeah. Something like that? Bill's- Actually, I had my own bedroom in CL's house and, and every night in high school during the uh, duck hunting seasonal weekends I would spend the weekend at CL's house and we would get up early and, well we we'd stay out late on Friday night uh, doing things we probably shouldn't talk about and then we'd get up Saturday morning and go duck hunting together yes well, well now Bill's got quite the fishing pedigree he won't talk much about it but he's been involved in shaping some pretty important legislation along this coast Dave hmm. Bill do tell <laughs> do tell uh, well, he's kind of shy about it. He was. Let me tell you, he's a. He's a. I hate fishing with Bill. He's my best friend in the whole wide world, and I sincerely hate fishing with him. And here's why. Uh, and he'll agree to this. We'll go fishing. I'll catch fifty fish. I'll catch fifty fish. Fast like you. He'll catch three. The one he catches. Much bigger. World class newspaper. You know, citation. What can I say? I'm a trophy fisherman. You are that. But tell us about his pedigree, Bill. Um, well, 
It started probably back in the 1990s. I was fortunate enough to win a few tournaments and picked up by a few tackle companies. And I became the first person in Virginia to win the Virginia Saltwater Angler of the Year and the Virginia uh, Saltwater Release Angler of the Year. About the same time, CL was winning the Virginia Non-Resident Angler of the Year, which I think he actually won two years. Coincidence? Coincidence, possibly, no. because we fish together. <laughs> Maybe, who knows. But uh, I was fortunate enough to and catch a few world records and just the right place at the right time and got some excellent opportunities to fish basically from South America to Alaska, and uh, very fortunate for a, a boy from a town on the eastern shore with a population of about 350 people. What? what? Town, and what town is that? That town is the, the city of Bloxham, Virginia. What one, of those, what one of those world records is spadefish? Yeah, I think I had three world record Atlantic spadefish caught in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, they ran up to about 14 pounds in weight, but... What kind of line class stuff? Yeah, Different pretty line much classes? line class, yeah. yeah. Line now, class so were you looking at the record books and saying, all right, I'm going to try and get this? Well, I was like fortunate enough to, angler. I am fortunate enough to be a member of the um, IGFA International Committee, and I was familiar with the world record um, process, the application process, and, uh, and aware of a lot of the records. And I, we knew that a particular area in the Chesapeake Bay held some really big spade fish, so we kind of targeted them. With records in mind, uh, we lost a lot, of course. We broke off a lot of fish, but we ended up winning, um, winning the battle on three or four fish, and uh, that qualified for world records, and I still have one spade fish that I, I still dream about that was as big as the outboard motor cover on my boat that I fought for about 20 minutes before breaking him off, but I, I fought that battle in my dreams over and over again. Now, is there something special about the bay versus the ocean? Because I, we I was swimming with him today trying to shoot a couple, and noticed I would say small to medium size but what is it about well one of the things that I've noticed about the bay and and I don't know if it I don't know if it's any science to back it up and I doubt it is but it appears when you look at a lot of the, the, the fish that come up in our bay we tend to get the largest of many of the species early mm-hmm. whether it be red drum or black drum or in, in Bill's case spade fish you know, we tend to get the mig- the push of the larger fish on the front end of it, hmm. and uh, and that's something that over the years we've targeted. Yeah, the spade fish, the larger fish seem to be a little more uh, cold water tolerant, and when the black drum population took a big dip, the adult black drum, we shifted our fishing efforts to other species, and uh, April and May, which were traditional black drum fishing months, we, we switched to spade fish among some of the structures in the lower Chesapeake Bay, and which held a lot, a lot of large spade fish, and that's that's pretty much how it came upon our world record quest. So, what's your tackle techniques or, or baits, lures? What are you using? Well, you know, we we've had spade fish for a long time in Virginia, and we really didn't know how to catch them. In the early years, we intentionally snagged them, and that became illegal. And yeah, and that's when I tied the chicken feathers on this weighted treble hook, and I called it a Chesapeake Bay spadefish lure. And let me tell you, the VMRC did not think kindly of that. <laughs> anyway, I, I was fortunate enough to fish with Carl Bain, who was director of the Virginia Saltwater Fishing Tournament, and a very good friend of mine. A terrible golfer. And actually, actually, he's a pretty scratch golfer, but uh, we went out to Chesapeake Light Tower, and we experimented with a lot of things. We knew that in South Carolina, the spade fish fishery was very successful using blue ball jellyfish, actual pieces of a thick jellyfish that were able to stay on the hook. 
We did not have that species of jellyfish here, so we tried several things and found that the soft bodies of clams were very um, successful in attracting spadefish. So we would uh, cut up, dice, basically dice clams and throw them overboard to attract the spadefish to the boat and then drift back large pieces of clams which covered the hook behind the float. And um, that's how we were basically hooking them and fighting them and then trying to get them away from the structure to, uh, to land them. And trying to get the bait to drift back and with the current kind of naturally. Right. It's basically like a miniature tuna chunking effort. You're, you're, you're having chunks of clam sink and you wanted your bait to basically sink at the same um, speed that the, uh, the pieces of chum were. And um, it was very, uh, very important to use a very small hook, but you had a very 2x or 3x strong hook that would handle the big spade fish without being uh, strained out and mixing it in there with the chum. And a pretty relatively small leader, too. You can't just upsize your leader for the size uh, no, of the fish. No, right? the spade fish have finicky. excellent, excellent uh, eyesight. Most of the time, our leader was 20 pounds or smaller. Back then, that fluorocarbon was expensive. We were chasing them pretty heavy, Bill. Well, yeah, I don't even think fluorocarbon was out when we first started fishing for them. That was more of a later release. So when was your most recent record on those? Oh, it's been several years now. I, I can't even tell you. Probably in somewhere in the 1990s, gotcha. late 1990s. So, what fish have you caught bigger than Bill's? Not many. <laughs> um, you know, I'm always happy to fish with him because I always know something cool is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I got, I could just go on and on, Dave. You know, just running in from offshore in our 19 foot boat and come across a sea turtle and you kill a big ass <laughs> cobia underneath of it. Yep. You know. 600 pound blue marlin in that same boat you know on and on and on it's just uh it's just always fun because you know something cool is going to happen uh it might not we might not catch a hunter but you know at the end of the day or shit he could sink like he did you know <laughs> now you know cl claims he doesn't catch much but cl did win a uh wahoo category in eastern shore marlin tournament on the boat yeah, yeah. capturing a big uh 50 some pound wahoo on a 21 yeah. foot contender that was nice. a good day Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So but, the uh, you mentioned all right, redfish on the way up. Seems like you get some early spades. You dip some black drum. Is there one fishery that stands out as one that's gone or one that's better than ever? The gray right trout. Now? Let's talk about gone. Gray this right. gray trout fishery, uh, it's a total collapse. Um, I mean, I remember going to Delaware Bay and I brought home seven fish and they weighed seventy-seven pounds. The big one was fourteen four. You know, we could go to the target ships off of uh, off behind Tangier, and we could cast bucktails, tip with peeler, and catch nine, ten pound gray trout with regularity. You could go up on any of the uh, the deep water oyster rocks, anchor up, send some peeler down to the bottom, and catch four or five pound fish with regularity. Bill and his father did that many times, as I did with my family. Uh, you could go on the shallow water rocks and catch the two and three pounders. You know, right here we're sitting in West Ocean City right now at Fisherman's Marina aboard the Fishbone. And just, you know, five miles just outside the inlet on one of those banks in the fall. I mean, I talked to guys yesterday who remember going out there and filling up trash cans of them, uh, you know, and coming home and having fish fries for their church. And to see that fishery collapse as it has, um, it's just mind-boggling, you know. I've seen things be so cyclical over the years, croakers. You know, you miss them for four or five years, they come back stronger than ever. Straight bass, you know, we had rough times with them. There, there seems to be good numbers of those now, uh, although some may argue that point. Uh, 
but this great trout fishery doesn't seem doesn't seem to be much of a survival rate beyond that 12 to 14 inch fish Dave. yeah i remember a couple of years ago we were fishing down tangier sound together and you, were, you had mentioned to me man they're all over the place took mom and dad out there yeah. fishing every oyster rock little 12 to 14 inches right but there's nothing above that but those fish never turned into the two and three pound right. fish the 18 to 24 inch fish that you know a lot of people especially in the you know fishing communities along the bay side whether it be solomon's or along the rappahannock or saxes or chrisfield man that was a staple for many years dave yeah. and they're gone yeah yeah what are you seeing uh bill any catch them in the surf at all or you surf fish quite a bit um we'll see a few uh small gray trout in the um in the fall, we did manage to catch some decent-sized gray trout up to six pounds last year in the surf at Hatteras. Uh, one thing that, that I hear from a lot of my friends in the commercial business is the uh, the horn dogs, the yeah. um, the, the spiny yeah. dogfish. They seem to have a tremendous impact on the population of, of small uh, gray trout in the uh, in the ocean waters. Um, I do know this spring and summer that there has been a, a number of gray trout just barely legal in the lower Chesapeake Bay, um, particularly off the Cape Charles area. So we're hoping that will translate to some larger fish this fall. Um, there generally is a good little spot along the Maryland-Virginia line right off the Saxis where we managed to find a, uh, a, a few keeper gray trout in the fall. But uh, hopefully the trend is going to be... Um, reversing in the, in the future but one fishery that i can tell you is much better now than i've ever seen it is is the adult red drum fishery i mean yeah. we um it's as close to a, a guaranteed a trophy fishery as there is in virginia yeah the last couple of years in maryland i live up in baltimore and then you know so don't get down this way as much as i used to um but uh i know they were catching probably as far north as the mouth of the chop tank with some regularity one mm-hmm. or two years in a row last year was a kind of a mess with all that rain um did you notice on the tangier side of the eastern side of the bay and you know virginia waters southern maryland or southern eastern shore of maryland waters last year with all that rain our, did it affect your fishing our fall fishery uh we're blessed to say is is pretty consistent yeah. when it comes to adult red drum you know one of the things that uh that i miss and i think about every day and it build us too and you were involved with it as well dave is that a slot fishery we had back in 2000 and uh 14 and 15 yeah uh that's something that i gotta tell you man it it was the most fun fishing that i think i've ever had a because it was new to us on the eastern shore here uh you're fishing much like you do in the keys and much like you do in coastal carolina and those lowland areas uh you know poling through the marsh looking for sloughs you know and it took us so and i think it was so so cool for us because we didn't know how to do it and we had to figure it out and once we did uh, we were on it, uh, and I miss that. I miss that wholeheartedly. I hope they come back. But then again, I think that those fish that we had in '14 are probably the same fish that I caught this year. Uh, at that time, they were 20 inches, 22 inches, and now I'd like to think that them fish that I'm catching uh, that I caught this spring and that I will catch uh, starting next week again, you know, the 40 plus inch fish. I'd like to think that I'd seen some of them before. Yeah, some of them definitely make it. The uh I've been seeing on some pictures in social media some guys I know that fish in Virginia, a bunch of the small guys, like 10 inches, 12 inches, something like that. So yeah, they're, they're hopefully fall. that's a sign for two or three years from now. That's that we get it again. So. 
Yeah, we've started to see what we call puppy drum. You know, fishing the 18 to 24 inch fish show up on some of the lower barrier islands by guys fishing uh, in the surf. So, you know, we're hoping that's the beginning of another banner year for, you know, these two-year-old, three-year-old fish. Another success, I think, of late, Dave, has been the speckled trout fishery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, three or four years ago, we had a bunch of the six to eight inch fish. And uh, now they're, um, you know, we're catching... I talked to Captain Walt today over in uh, Chrisfield, mm -hmm. and uh, it's as close to a guarantee right now with him as you can get. Um, I think he's burning, um, well, he told me he was burning about four to five gallons a trip and, uh, you know, putting his clients on limits of, of speckle trout. So that fishery is really good now. Yeah, yeah, and that's another one that will go up and down. And I think, Bill, you were, we were talking earlier today about the uh, the cold winter that hit right after that really good small right. slot drum fishery and drum croaker spot speckle trout speckle trout yeah. they're all affected by by the cold and we had a pretty mild winter so those speckle trout that would be growing up we're now yeah, the success of the speckle trout fishers seems to be very dependent on the uh, wintertime water temperatures um, we we've seen a, a, there's a number of speckle trout that winter in the Virginia Beach Rudy Inlet Lynn Haven Inlet areas and and mild winters, um, they can be caught almost, you know, eight months a year. And uh, during the cold winters, the freezes, those, those fish tend to be uh, very lethargic and pop up and actually can be scooped up with a net. Mm -hmm. And there's usually a large die-off during that period. So those months that we can, those summers that we can, I mean, excuse me, those winters that we can avoid, those extreme cold periods, uh, tend to be the years that, that we really have a very successful spring and fall uh, speckled trout fishery. And that's been pretty much your experience growing up over the years? Um, well, when I was growing up, I'm so old that I don't remember many warm winters. They always seemed to be cold, but we always had a larger class of speckled trout, but we never saw the small fish. Hmm. Where this year, I mean, you know, nowadays we'll see fish from 8 inches to 28 inches. Um, yeah, well, this, we weren't really putting ourselves in a position to find those small fish bill back then either. No, it's basically a... Because we weren't casting lures, we were... It's a spring, uh, basically a peeler crab fishery off of the, um, you know, mid-Chesapeake Bay, the Mason's Beach, Anancock um, Creek, Half Moon Island type of area, and that's where the Virginia State record was caught. I believe it's 16 pounds. I um, saw a picture of that thing the other day. It was only like 26 inches long, and it was built like me, not you. <laughs> <laughs> that thing was short, and it looked like it would eat up about a four-pound blue fish. <laughs> well, you say that. That's a lot, there's a lot of truth to that. That was caught by a fellow named Bill Catco, a fishing yep. angler from New Jersey, who actually caught the state record on a piece of bluefish. Mm -hmm. okay. I was yeah. in a conversation with some guys uh, that run the Speckled Truth uh, yeah. uh, piece on, they, uh, online, and they're, they're great fishermen. I've learned a lot from them about speckled trout fishing, uh, borrowing some of the techniques they use down in the Gulf and bringing them up here. Some work, some don't. You know, but uh, hey, it's always interesting to talk to other people and see what they're doing. And uh, you know, anything that, that I can pick up along the way is I'm always willing to listen. Yeah, those guys are probably, I listen to their podcasts and then pay attention to their stuff, or I've heard them on podcasts, I guess. And uh, they're what, crazy people. What, what was interesting <laughs> is they didn't realize we had speckled trout up here. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, the Maryland, I think the Maryland, and I was, I've been in Texas recently for a couple CCA things and gone trout fishing, have been talking trout, and uh. The, I think the Maryland and probably Virginia state records are bigger than some of the Gulf states. Yeah, the Virginia state record was a world record for many, many years until it was beat out by in. a 
by a fish off of uh, Florida. I just came in over there. So, yeah, but see how much we're down here in the Fisherman's Marina? Yeah, we're in Fisherman's Marina, and uh, it's White Marlin Open weekend, and you know, it's a lot going on around us right now, and it's, uh, it's a fun time. Yeah, um, you got that right. The town is packed. The town is packed. It's arguably the busiest uh, bu- busiest week of the year. Um, quite honestly, uh, you know, I am pro-team Fishbone for uh, a lot of reasons. We were hoping that they uh, cash a big check this week. So hopefully that comes to, comes to fruition. Well, what is it, 410 uh, boats? Yeah, there's a lot of money out there to be won. It's over, uh, what, a $6.1 million purse? $6.1 million. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you think about the... 400 uh, boats. You know, I, there was an action that I got involved in when I was still a volunteer for CCA. It's called the Unmanaged Forage Protection Action by the Mid-Atlantic Council. And I remember coming down and talking to some guys and looking into like the um, the economics of, of this tournament. And we were trying to paint the picture of what bill fishing is to a town like this. And, Uh-oh. man, if you want to get remotely get a picture of it, just come during this first week of August. But there are probably 3,000 people in Arbor Island watching well, the scale you just tonight. talk to any restaurant owners who are right. Talk, i tell you how big a deal it is. Talk to Spunky at the real end. I mean, this week makes his year. Yep. You know? Uh, he does a great job in his food there at the real end um, in Marsh, Harb- Marsh Island. Marsh, whatever it is. Harbor Island. Harbor Island. Island. Yeah, it's the real end. I was there earlier. They had great orange crushes. <laughs> hey, they had pineapple crushes. They do like pineapple, pineapple crushes. But, uh, and natural lights. But, yeah, it, 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 ma- it makes his year. I mean, you look at Sunset Grill. They do a great job. Uh, you know, annually ranked as one of the top restaurants in the state of Maryland. And you talk to Buddy, he'll tell you, uh, you know, this White Marlin Week is a truly a big deal. It's a tremendous economic Factor uh, for the positive, not only the town of Ocean City, but the whole area. Um, it's amazing what it does. Well, I mention it in a lot of different other podcasts and stuff we do all the time. There's excise taxes and all sorts of different kickbacks that the sport fishing community provides back into conservation. And sometimes people get a little confused about what conservation exactly means. But billfish are a tremendous story. I mean, have you guys seen population of white marlin come back in your lifetime? Do you remember changes there? I mean, they probably slid off the beach a little bit. You know, they slid off the beach a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we used to catch them at Jack Spot back in the day. Yeah, you know, and uh, and now, how far did you run today, Billy? Uh, seventy-eight miles. You ran seventy-eight miles today, and I'm sure he wasn't alone out there. Right. right. So, yeah, it's a, it's they've moved off a little bit. Uh, I would like to think, but well, this water is clear and sure. Mm-hmm. I saw flying fish just uh, on Sunday, twelve miles off the beach. Yeah. Well, it's a all the different currents and all the different stuff going on there's a lot a lot of changes we don't even begin to understand but no I think the um, the turnaround in billfish at least you know, and the changes in different rules and long line fisheries and everything else and you know they're really important you and think this so? is exactly what they drive and you look at this tournament what 410 boats imagine I mean what'd you, how much fuel did you burn today? 650 gallons 650 <laughs> gallons of diesel times times 400 some boats <laughs> times 3 days a week but I'm um, um, we're a little bit bigger than most, but yeah. I think somebody put a number in around 200,000 gallons of fuel burned today. Wow. That's amazing. 200,000. That's today. That's, that's what I heard. That's like probably somebody right. Somebody was just yep. going at it like, you know, I mean, because there's a lot of bigger boats than me and there's a lot of smaller boats, so you got to kind of average right. it out. So we woke Billy up off the couch and now he's officially joined the podcast <laughs> in some ways? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm just what? waiting for the boat to come in next to me. It's down on one motor. I want to make sure. It's all good. All good. He hasn't yeah. hit. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so protect your boat. But we're also a big family. You want to take care of people when they're yeah. you know limping in. Who's well, coming in? Uh, the pool party oh. uh, has been 
coming in for a while. Mm. A long while. Uh, well, at least we had beautiful weather today, and uh, the scales were really busy. I mean, if you guys are, this podcast may not make it up this week, so I can't say, hey, look at the website. But if you haven't seen the amazing production that uh, the team from, uh, from uh, Fish and OC does and the Moscow family, you know, what, what year is it this year? 40, 46, I believe. 46. And what, two weeks ago, the Hook Big Fish Classic. Another great event with, with uh, increased uh, participation, but this billfish tournament, circle hooks are required you know, for fish yeah. and bait, and the vast majority of the flags you see are upside down, meaning they've released the fish. Right. I can't remember the stats, but it's always in the high 90% It's the high range. 90s, Dave. Yeah. 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 So, so, so Bill and I, and uh, <laughs> <Here we> go, <laughs> a few years back, it was Bill Hall and myself, and uh, uh, this podcast, you go to a lot of folks up in the Baltimore area, I'm sure. And they'll hear, uh, and they probably know the name Bill Bateman. He owns, used to own some restaurants up there. I guess he still does. Haven't seen him in a while. So it's me and him and Anthony Thomas. And, and uh, it's me, Bill, Anthony Thomas, and Bill Bateman. So we go out fishing, and we, we had a great day. We, we caught four or five more in one day. and at least four, four or five more. Yeah, and then... So during the tournament, you're doing yes. what? Yeah. Okay. Then we catch the, the second day. We catch a bunch more, but the last day, there was one special one that we <coughs> that we picked off the short rigger, and he come out of the water. It was no doubt I was going to kill it, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was that fish. Yep. You know, yep. it was long, and it was perfect. And it was beautiful, and I killed it, and uh, it was an inch longer than the one that was leading. So on the way back in, we were spending our money. <laughs> talking about what we're going to buy and what we're going to hide and all that stuff. So we get we we, we do all that and we run out of beer and Bill Bateman calls his wife at the time and she's passed away now bless her heart and uh, told her we were out of we're out of beer tell so and so to me to set scales. So we we go into the scales and and Anthony uh, he's driving the boat the seahorse at that time on North Coast. And he makes the turn. He's backing up the scales. I'm like, hold up, hold up. He's like, what's up? I said, man, dude, don't screw this up, man. We may never get here again. I said, let's do this right. So uh, he, we, we pull her on in there just right, and, you know, everything went good. And our fish was long enough, but it just wasn't quite heavy enough. Gotcha. And uh, we were unfortunate that that didn't work out. But the good thing was uh, that uh, the call went through for more beer, and Bill Bateman's wife had some dude show up with a brand-new 48-quart igloo cooler loaded with iced iron miller lights and of that we took full advantage there you go there you go <laughs> so we get the neighbor here yeah we got the pool party coming in on one engine apparently there you go that'd be a long day out there yeah hopefully you don't hit us <laughs> we've been in that situation before and that's, that's not fun a, yeah it's a long that's a long ride in that was a matter of fact that was one of parker's first trips uh, first offshore strip, my son Parker, who works on the fishbone. We uh, were coming from Watcher Prig, coming back to Ocean City, and we lost the transmission. And uh, so we trolled up, and he caught a dolphin just outside of Winter Quarter Shoals. And I guess that did it for him. That's all it took. Yep, flip this, the switch flip. So it seems like Kobe has become popular. We had one swim right up to the boat today. A guy missed it making a, a, a shot with a spear gun. And uh, I'm actually heading out. Kobe fishing tomorrow with Captain Tyler Non, who's uh, written on catching them in Tide Magazine, CCA's magazine a bit. And he's a he's a great uh, one of the young guns, and just like all of us, getting older by the day. Um, but we'll be sight casting them tomorrow, maybe looking for some red drum. So, in your experiences with Kobe, 
you know, what's changed? Is there a change in the fishery you've seen, or um, has it gotten better, has it gotten worse, or certain techniques you like to... No, I think the Kobe fishery has rebounded quite well. Um, there are a lot of fish, and there are a lot of increased regulations now. I mean, it used to be... you, you got to take your lawyer to go Kobe fishing now. <laughs> that, that's pretty true. You have, to have a, you have to have a state VMRC permit now just to target Kobe. Um, you have to. There are certain reporting regulations. You have to report every time you fish for cobia in Virginia. In Virginia, even if you're not successful in catching one, you have to report your effort. What's what kind of system for do they use? Yeah. Um, it's it's a fish. It's a system that is available on the internet. Um, you, you log log into the VMRC website. You give your cobia permit number and your name, and uh, it's documented through that. And those people who don't do a good job and document their effort or lack of effort are not allowed to get a permit the following year. But it's a it's a large educational process. I know I write a local newspaper column uh, on fishing, and that's one of the things that I stressed in the spring was that people need to be able to you know to to apply for their permit and get their permit, even if they don't plan on catching a, a cobia, just in case that opportunity arises. And the opportunities are there this year. Uh, I talked to a lady yesterday for, um, for again for the, uh, the weekly fishing column, and they actually caught a cobia this week inside the harbor of Chincoteague. So they're basically, you know, from up in the Maryland down to the bridge tunnel. I know CO and I had the opportunity to go uh, about a month ago. We had a couple hour window that we knew thunderstorms were coming in, but we decided to go anyway, and we landed nine cobia, two sharks, and a ray in a two hour period. And basically, we left the biting. We were, I was tired wanting to come home. <laughs> we, were worn, we were worn out. I mean, we started fishing four rods with, uh, you know, cut bait and chumming, and we went down to two rods just because it was too much going on. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've heard recently they're being caught up in, like, the Cape May Rips, mouth of Delaware Bay. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something you recall hearing before? Well, there are, there are no flying or offshore of Ocean City. I can tell you that. There are no flyender offshore of Ocean, I mean, no uh, surface feeding flyender off the coast of Ocean City. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they call them here surface feeding flyender. Surface feeding flyender. Okay, okay. Was that new, or do you feel like they're moving further north? Well, I think the fish, I, I personally think that, the, yes, I do think they're moving further north, as they are in the Chesapeake Bay as well. I also think that. Uh, we've had fish before, and folks didn't know how to didn't target them. Yeah, uh, I believe that. I mean, we've been catching them chumming down around the, as many people have for years down around the Bay Bridge Tunnel, and I, but when you, there hasn't been much effort put for uh, put forth to catch them north of that um, until recently. There's been a little bite off around Punkatig in that area in the spring, but especially on the seaside here, I think those fish, you know, have been making their way up around Shinkatig and and. Uh, Certainly no farther than Shinkatee. They're not in Ocean City. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think they've been there, but folks haven't elected to target them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm a little little older than CL, a few years older than CL, and I want to argue that point a little bit. When I, when I was much younger, the area off in Hancock, Virginia, I still remember the sign. Cobia capital of the world. That in Hancock, Virginia was the Cobia capital of the world. And people targeted the fish on an area called the Punkatee Platts. And before the onset of the Cobia Towers that we see now cruising, looking for sight casting fish, the old timers actually put stepladders in their boats. Mm-hmm. And one person drove the boat, another person stood up on the stepladder looking for uh, that 
particular V-wake that indicates, you know, a surface traveling cobia. And um, one of my one of my good friends, Parker Johnson, and his brother Billy Johnson were, were big pioneers in that fishery back in the 50, 1950s and 1960s. And um, they caught fish, you know, 50, 60, sometimes 70 pounds in that area. Then the fish seemed to disappear. Do you think it had anything to do with the swelling toads going? I, I've heard that many, many times, that when the, uh, the bluefish, the southern puffers, the swelling toads, whatever you want to call them, disappeared. That's what Babel the, James the said. disappeared. There's a lot of old-timers who truly believe that. Yeah. yeah. Now, would you find them in their stomachs back in the day when there were a lot of toads around? I never well, did. I, I, I'm old, but I'm not old enough to participate in that fishery. I just recall stories. When was that, Bill? Us. When was it claimed the Cobia capital of the of the? I can remember the sign still being in an Ancock <coughs> in the mid 1960s, and it disappeared soon after. But I always often wonder where that sign is. Yeah, I'd like to have it. Yeah, we had the uh, an Ancock. It was deemed the Cobia capital of the world, and at one time. Watchaprig, Virginia, on the seaside was deemed the uh, finder capital of the world. So. And that fishery's come back inshore now too, Bill. I mean, the guys that are uh, that are fishing follies in those areas, they're doing pretty well. It's rebounded quite well this year. Uh, it still can't compare to some of the offshore fishing, structure fishing, and also the fishing um, in the lower Chesapeake Bay along the Bridgetown. The finder seem to be a lot more structure oriented, or at least they're targeted to larger fish around the structures now than they used to be when you target them inside the inlets and along the flats Agreed. of the seaside. Now, what are the, uh, what's the, what's the fall, what's going to happen in the fall here with the flounder? Like, what's next? We're going to keep catching them. They're just around the wrecks. Right. As, as the water um, temperatures decline, the, the, temp, the, the flounder will move offshore and they'll, they'll congregate around the offshore structure for a while before moving, usually south off of Carolina off closer to the uh, the continental shelf you know we've i mean here we are in uh this is mid uh was white marlin week in ocean city and uh the fifth sixth day of august where we're doing this and uh you know just this on saturday i was at and we've caught a four-man limiter flinder but we also caught an increased number of sea bass which is i think a little early for that right now normally we don't see the sea bass in them 60 to 90 foot uh area until a little bit later in the year when it starts to cool up a little bit but, uh, yeah, we, they turned to be a, a little bit of a problem on Saturday. They ran us off of a couple wrecks. And you're trying to stick right in close to the structure for the flounder? Yeah, I mean, it's, if, you, if you're, you know, and I can't say what other people do, but in my experience, I can tell you that if you're off the wreck and you're not fishing directly on that structure, uh, you might as well be fishing in your living room. Yeah, so you're losing some stuff and... Yeah, they're tackling. If you're not losing tackle, you're not in the right place. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I was laying off on top of that wreck today. Did you see anything down there, Dave? Did you want? To, did you want to take? Twenty-five feet of water. I'm laying there, just hanging on to the to the anchor line, just breathing through the snorkel, and I'm looking, looking, looking. I swear, I saw the world's largest sea robin. There were two or three of them down there. You know, twenty-five feet of water. You look down, and you go, "All right, how big is that?" And with spear fishing, you got to yeah. follow the same rules as hook and line. So I'm looking at some of this thing, and I was looking for flounder. They make um, great flounder bait, Dave. I bet they do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let's turn the tables a little bit. Let me ask yeah. you a question. Yeah. Hey, what about the snakehead thing? I mean, you know, we're down here on the shore. We're kind of at least somewhat isolated from it. I mean, is this a threat that something we're going to have to face? So have you have you heard any rumors or yeah, seen any? Yeah, we, we've seen some snakeheads on the lower Chesapeake Bay and even some of the, um, the ponds that um, empty into the Chesapeake Bay. This is the first year that we've actually documented uh, several snakehead catches 
Uh, for We're moving. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. That's, really, <laughs> that's what that sounds like. Decision. <laughs> so, what, off of like what river systems? Um, actually, in some of the, the Bayside Creeks up in the... I uh, swore I saw one at Morley's Wharf. That's the, the, as a matter of fact, Morley's Wharf is the first location that I ever heard and actually saw a picture of that I could actually say was was a snakehead. A lot of, a lot of uh, there's there's one species of freshwater fish called a bowfin, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. resembles a snakefish. I mean, excuse me, a snakehead. Um, there's a little different fin placement, but they're 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 very similar. And uh, these fish that I saw, that I got pictures. Fortunately, I'm a member of the Virginia Saltwater Fishing Tournament, which is a state operated um, fishery recognition program and one of my jobs is to verify species for state records Mm -hmm. and so I have to be kind of up on my uh, species identification Mm -hmm. and I was able to make some positive identifications of snakeheads which I've called before while fishing in Florida several times. Yeah yeah they uh, so from what I'm hearing they're definitely showing up a lot north of Baltimore Western Shore, I assume Eastern Shore. These but guys on the Nanticoke, and then the, I mean, I hear they're blood. Yeah, so they're up northwest. They're they're growing, and it sounds like the numbers are going up. I'm going to try and get out on some of those rivers and see it for myself. But I caught my first ones two or three weekends ago now in the Chicken Macamico near Vienna, and that's a tributary that comes out of Fishing Bay. That ain't no different than a Pokemon. Well, it's not. It's not uh, the Nanticoke has them, Marshy Hope has them. So the Marshy Hope's a tributary off the. Um, off the Nanticoke right above Route 50 bridge over Vienna, you know, right by Vienna there. Right. So, you know, there's no question there's a lot of people moving them around. Yeah. And We've actually buckets. seen them show up in crab pots yeah. in some of the uh, the estuaries. Mm. The yeah, so, I mean, they're, I think they're here to stay. And, um, you know, you're talking about Virginia's always had a great citation program and a, a great awards program for all their anglers. And, and Maryland's working on bringing some of that stuff back you know, we've always had the citation program. Right. But I, as I'm growing up as a Maryland angler, I had to go to North Carolina and Virginia before I even heard about it and understood what it was. Cause, and maybe that's just me, but um, I think there's a, a lot of these different fisheries we have to celebrate and kind of accept what we have there. If we can try and make a difference with these invasive species, we should. We shouldn't move them around where they don't belong, but, right. you know. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the whole deal right there, what you just said, Dave. I mean, wh- whether you're talking about snakeheads or red drum or speckle trout or whatever, you know, celebrate and take advantage of what we have. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're lucky that we you know to live on the Eastern Shore. We're lucky to, to be where we are, to have the options that we do. And, uh, you know, the great trout are dying right now, but, hey, you know, red drum fishing is good and speckled trout fishing is good. And, you know, celebrate that, take full advantage of it. And that's that's one of the things that we're blessed, uh, you know, down where we live to be able to take it to, to do. Well, absolutely. Throughout the whole Chesapeake Bay area, right. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can point at and go, okay, that's frustrating and it's a problem maybe we have to work on, but you talked about submerged aquatic vegetation. Mm-hmm. It continues to go back up. Um, there's some challenges with, with some things, but the reds are up. There's some trout around. There's there's still rockfish out there. There's management action going to happen later this week, and yeah, there's something that needs to be done with rockfish. It's not perfect, but again... Yeah, the water needs to cool off. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of different... But you know, you, you talk about that. I bought a boat from a guy up in... Uh, from, from, I bought it from Brad Foxwell. I bought his Mako, and I'm yep. real, really pleased with this boat. And uh, when I went to test drive this boat from him, I met him in Kent Island. And you hear things, and you hear stories, but until it actually slaps you in the face, it has, it has really no uh, bearing on what you're doing. Well, when I test drove this boat, you know, we're, we're heading north, and there's a steady stream of rockfish floating on the, on, the, on the surface of the bay. 
I'm like, where are these things coming from? And, you know, are they, is there a gill netter up here? And he told me it was from a hook and line fishery. And that kind of made me feel a little bad. You know, I got no skin in that game, and I don't begrudge uh, the charter captains or the recreational anglers that are up there who are allowed to do this. But I think we kind of need to take a, take a strong look at that because, you know, it, if you haven't seen it, you need to go look at it and judge it for yourself as I did. Uh, you know, we're not talking, you know, 15 or 20 fish. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of fish on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, with the warm water up there, uh, the lack of oxygen in that water, you know, I'm not sure that that's a viable fishery. In Virginia, they close air season during that year, during that time of, don't they, Bill? Yes, they do. Uh, Virginia season is closed during the summer. Uh, do I, and it really doesn't bother me because they've got other stuff to target. Again, I'm not sure with what they what they have up available uh, in your neck of the woods, Dave. But, you know, if you're looking for the long-term um, viability of a species, you know, A, well, there's two things to think about. A, you know, why would you allow uh, a fishery with such a low survival rate? And as much as it, it hates to say, you know, as much as it burns me to say it, you know, I think we really need to take a look at that trophy season. Yeah. I mean, there's, you got to, I think the biggest issue with striped bass rockfish has been that over, over a multi-year period didn't have very good recruitment. And so if we didn't take our foot off the gas pedal, we continued to kill too many. And right. That's as simple as you can make it. That fishery in the upper part of the bay, um, on one of our first episodes of the podcast, we had a scientist talk about some of the science behind what those fish are experiencing. Chuck Foster? No, no, not Chuck. Chuck's retired. <laughs> Chuck is retired. Chuck's probably fishing somewhere, yes. I hope. Yes. He's a, I tell you what, he's a good fisherman. <laughs> well, and they, they talked a lot about that, and there's no question there's pound nets in that area that are capturing fish that are dying. There's, yeah. there's guys that are going out and catching and releasing with bait in the hot uh, hot period of the, the year. The water's too warm to have a, a viable survival rate. Well, absolutely, and it's funny. There's been a, not funny, It's there's there's been a back and forth between what is catch and release fishing and people saying, oh, don't catch and release, don't catch and release. And it's like, guys, we're, at, this, at a certain point, you're splitting hairs. You're going fishing. You might have to release a fish that's not legal. It's a blood sport. It is. It is. <laughs> it's the it's a resource to put something on your on your plate. Right. Yeah. And make no mistake about yeah. that. I mean that I go and I yeah. I enjoy catching fish. I you know I don't, I don't mind turning that big red drum loose. But let me tell you, that three pound speckled trout is coming home with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, and every angler should follow the rules. That should be what divide. It we should, there should be a lot less division. I think in all aspects of life, you, people should be able to sit down and have a conversation about. Right. What's right, what's wrong, because there's, and, but it's not black and white. It never, never has been, never will never be. Never will be. In our community, you know, you th- you're talking about the old timers. I mean, how many great places in every little town where you can fish? How many like great like we, we were turkey hunting. We went out to Saxon and had uh, breakfast sandwiches one day. We did, and, and it's a nice, you know, little spot on the wharf there. Listening to stories, Martha's Kitchen, Martha's Kitchen, Martha James, yeah. Well, sitting there listening, you know, listening to the stories, and I think that's what's so important about our community. And even in doing the work I do with CCA, you know, I get frustrated. I see members that are rightfully frustrated, and anybody, people even that aren't members, frustrated about the direction some of our fisheries are going. But you always have to realize, all right, I can identify a problem all day long. It's the people that are going to rise to the occasion to make things better, or the people that are going to say, you know what. Let's find a solution. Well, Let's you know, work I th- together to maybe change our techniques or change our tackle. We don't I always think that I think that down. burden falls on all of us every time we go. It does uh, you know we're the ones out there on the front lines, you know, who are making the decisions on whether we're going to kill that fish, release that fish, what we're going to target, what method we're going to use, and all. You know, and you know, we're the guys on the front lines. So you know, you live and die by your decisions. You know, uh, 
and that's just that's how it should be. We can't rely on legislation. We can't rely on 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 as I've witnessed on several occasions, uh, people with a huge disconnect from what's actually happening mm-hmm. uh, aboard the boats to be to be running this legislation in our throats. You know, yeah. If we yeah. see something that's not going to work, if we see something that's not uh, going to be an effective measure to allow us to keep those fish to put on the plate or to allow the survival, the sustainability of the species, then then we need to speak up. Uh, you know, you're exactly right. And it's it, you remind me now of that that cobia stuff that's going on right now, where you have to report your your catch and see how. Would you say you got to get a lawyer before you can go fishing? What are the rules, Bill? You got to explain them to me every time we go. What okay, are they? Okay, there's a minimum minimum <laughs> size of five inches per boat. You know, well, one fish per person, not allowed more than three fish per boat, and only one of those fish can be over 50 inches. Plus, you have to report any kind of fishing effort form and, and catch effort. And you've got to you've got to have your free cobia you've got to have your cobia permit that's available for free through the uh, online and to fish in Virginia, you've got to have a Virginia FIP number, which, by the way, I found out in Northampton County Court, is not transferable. <laughs> uh, uh, there's no re- reciprocity uh, with FIP numbers from state to state. There you go. Although I did, you know, I did produce uh, seven <laughs> different permits that had VMR, VMRC ID numbers that allow them to track my fishing effort, but apparently there's aren't good enough yet to have a FIP number also. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, I was talking to a good friend one night about um, accountability and measuring our catch and our effort and all that kind of stuff. And these big systems that exist aren't perfect. We know it. No. And they say it right there in the meetings. And it, the people have to realize, like, read what's on the paper in the plan. Nobody thinks fisheries management's perfect. No. But we also don't want to get to a point where fishing's not fun anymore because it's, it's like doing your taxes. It's a game that moves as you play it, you yeah, know? Yeah, it is. It is. So... It's a challenging thing, but it's a uh, it's worth it to get it's, it right. The snowfall episode. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? Uh, anyhow, it's so, a good, yeah. So, what's next for you guys, fishing wise? Well, uh, right now, I think the next thing is. Um, well, we, I tell you what's next for us. I'm not <laughs> sure when this is going to air, but I can, uh, when you're going to release this thing. But on this Saturday, the 10th day of August, uh, it's a great uh, benefit tournament that Bill and I are going to fish in. And uh, we look forward to uh, full participation uh, in this event. I see a Nancock Fire Company second annual. Actually, it's the third annual. Croker tournament. And we do expect to win this tournament. We do expect to win. We're going in all. (laughs) We're in full send mode. Uh, It's a a, a, a hellacious schedule in the tournament. I think we fished from one to five on Saturday, Bill. Yes. One to five. Uh, The the, uh, prizes are non-existent. Uh, it's a, there are, I guess there are prizes. There's no cash prizes. There's no cash prizes, but actually we've had some very good, uh, very good response from the community with donations from yeah. local taco shops. It's to support. It's it's to support the Nancock Fire Company to be held out of a Nancock Creek, um, and uh, it's the biggest single croaker, the biggest stringer of three, the biggest non-croaker, and I think there are some other prizes that are awarded based on uh, other criteria. <laughs> Well, I wish I had didn't already have plans on Saturday. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a it's a good benefit for a good cause. I mean, uh, you know, anytime you can support uh, a fire company or, or any entity like that, that you know, at, at some point may well be supporting you. Um, you know, it's I think it's in our best interest to do that. Plus, I know that uh, Adam James, the the chief of the Nancock Fire Company, does a great job 
and uh, he supported me in a couple of endeavors. He supported all of us through a lot of things, and uh, you know, you give back where you can. Absolutely. Now, that, that this uh, that's what this community is all about. It's one thing about the Lower Eastern Shore and, and everywhere throughout this country. There's always sportsmen and people from the local community giving back and utilizing fun on the water to give back to the community. Right. And you, know, you guys, are, as we've talked about, you guys are fortunate to have grown up in an area and have a, a long-term friendship, be able to fish together, such diverse fisheries that Delmarva offers. Mm. And uh, so, you know, folks have not made it down to this area. Come down to Ocean City, check it out, head to the eastern shore of Virginia. Not too many of you, but... No, we're, <laughs> we're full. <laughs> He still lives in Maryland. That's we're, right. uh, we're, we're, we're one that's off, right. one on right now. <laughs> hey, that's, that's the way it's got to be. Yes. Get out there and have some fun. And uh, and check out CL Marshall Publishing. CLMarshallPublishing.com will be up and running. Uh, that's it. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at uh, Chesapeake Bay Books. Uh, but we're excited about this new one. It's uh, I tell you, it's uh, there are some stories in this one that will certainly uh, make you think about, uh, well, the people that have read them, uh, they've said they've made them think about their choices, make them think about uh, uh, a lot of the more deeper aspects of why they do what they do uh, when it comes to fishing, when it comes to hunting, uh, when it comes to relationships and the like. So although, although the books are, uh, and all the books can be said about all my books, uh, although they're, they're thematically based on hunting and fishing, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, a lot of females have read it and said, uh, <laughs> and said, you know, wow, I, I, you know, it's kind of made me think about the relationship I have with my husband and why he does have the stupid shit he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and how important hunting and fishing sometimes right. is yes. to a relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it ain't simple. Right. No, it ain't and, simple. And, and my column appears every Friday in the Eastern Shore Post, and it's called Fishing from the Shore. Now, that's available online, too, isn't it, Bill? Uh, it is online. Actually, it won... Uh, Recognized by the Virginia Press Association last year as one of the top three columns in the state of Virginia in the sports division. So I'm yeah. very proud of that. He's got Fantastic. quite the pedigree, Bill Hall does. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, um, and also, if somebody catches a, a, a record fish or a big fish, they're going to be right. get to meet you in person, maybe to identify the species and certify. The Eastern Shore, there's a very good chance of that happening. Yes. He's famous. There you go. So get out there and catch a bigger fish than Bill. Beat a couple. So are any of your records still standing? Actually, I think I still have one line class. Um, I broke one of my own line classes, and I think I still have one line class spade fish world record. Well, there you go. Look for look up Bill Hall on the list and try and take him out. He's the, he's, <laughs> he's the man. All right, Dave. Gentlemen, thank, thank you, you for a late night tonight and uh, right. a great dinner at the Rice House in West yeah, OC. Yeah, B. Chang, man, it, you know, he, he does a great job. Yeah, yep. so appreciate it, and uh, thanks for joining or listening along. Thank right, you, Dave. Thank you.